and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. We're in Revelation 20, and what I would say about this chapter, it's, it's one of the most controversial in the book of Revelation, what is the millennium, um, but it's also probably one of the most controversial passages within Scripture. Um, people have divided over this, they've gone different ways as brothers in Christ over this. Um, I don't think there's a lot of wisdom in dividing over it. Uh, I think there's a lot of wisdom in understanding each other. Um, And so uh, my goal for you as we go through this is what is the millennium? And I'm going to share with you the three major views. And so when you hear millennium, you're going to see a thousand years mentioned, I think, six times here in this chapter. Um, And so a thousand years, when you hear millennium, that's a Latin word, milli meaning thousand and annus meaning year. So millennium means a thousand years. Okay. And so the three major views that have existed within the church for a while are post-millennialism, amillennialism, and premillennialism. I'll explain. Post means after, okay? So Jesus comes back after the millennium. And so within this view, as well as amillennialism, the thousand-year reign is allegorical. A thousand years meaning a long period of time. Okay, and so within this post-millennial view, the idea is that the church, as we do our job and we spread the gospel and the word of God makes it across the world, the, the world becomes Christianized and that will bring about in a spiritual sense through the church, a period um, of, of Christ's reign across the earth. And once that happens, he will return. Okay, that's post-millennialism. Um, couple major names that have gone with that view were Jonathan Edwards and Charles Wesley. Um, I personally find that one the hardest one to go for. Um, the idea that as, as we Christianize the world, that'll then bring about um, Jesus's return. What we see within the book of Revelation is ongoing. It gets worse, not better. Um, before the end comes. And so that's going to be the major difference between post-millennialism and all-millennialism. All-millennial, when you hear that, um, it means no literal millennium. Okay, so it's not a literal thousand-year reign, but the idea is that we live in a realized millennium right now. So that when Jesus died on the cross, Satan was bound. He is currently bound. The Gentile nations are no longer deceived as the gospel spreads across the earth. Uh, There is the belief that the world gets worse and worse before Jesus returns. And so uh, my big struggle with this... um, with this approach is that the the program that God has and the promises that God made to Israel, the view within this is that they're not completely fulfilled. They're now completely fulfilled in a spiritual sense with the church. So when God made promises to Abraham about land, seed, and blessing, those weren't literal promises to Abraham. They were figurative promises that are now fulfilled in the church. When God promised David a uh, everlasting kingdom, that wasn't a literal kingdom on the earth. That was a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus now sits on David's throne in heaven. Um, I think it makes you allegorize passages that I, I, I have a hard time doing. That said, I know people that, that hold that view, and I, I can actually kind of understand where you, why, how you would get there on that one. Um, 
the, their strong ties to the Roman Catholic Church. And then when the Reformation happened, this is something that did not change within the Reformation. Wycliffe, Luther, and Calvin all held the view of amillennialism as well. What I would say about both amillennial and postmillennial viewpoints is uh, they, they tend to take a more spiritual and allegorical approach to the scriptures. Um, and I think there are definitely times when we should do that with the scriptures, especially when it tells us to. Like in the book of Revelation, when it says like or as, it's telling us that it's a metaphor or a simile. We're not supposed to take it literally. Um, but there are places where uh, that, that doesn't happen. And then when we allegorize where it doesn't happen, it... It can get hairy. Um, that said, I, I don't, I, I don't, again, the point behind this is not to divide. The, the view that I've been teaching from is a premillennial view. Um, and so in the book of Revelation, it's typically more, read more literally, unless the book of Revelation tells you not to, um, or, you know, lets you know it's like or as something. And in this, the thousand-year time frame is taken literally, and Jesus' rule is seen as a literal, physical rule from Jerusalem for a thousand-year period after the Great Tribulation. Um, so within this viewpoint, uh, there's the belief in the rapture. The other views don't actually hold a rapture view, um, unless you get somebody fringy within one of them. But the mainline views don't hold a view for rapture. Um, but within the premillennial view, uh, the idea is that Jesus comes for his church, um, and even within the premillennial view, there's... Um, does he do it at the before the tribulation? Does he do it in the middle of the tribulation? Whatever the case, God comes and raptures his church and the church is no longer on the earth uh, for the great tribulation. And during that seven year period, God is working through the nation of Israel again to fulfill the promises to Abraham and David. Uh, the first three and a half years of the tribulation are pretty mild as the Antichrist brings a false sense of peace. The last three and a half years unravel and result in the end of Revelation chapter 19, where we see the battle of Armageddon and the false prophet and the Antichrist being thrown into the lake of fire and everybody who followed them um, losing their lives as well. So that when you enter the millennium, Jesus does what, what Joshua failed to do or what the Israelites failed to do when they entered the promised land. Um, Jesus eradicates evil before the time of the millennium happens. Um, so everyone who enters the millennium is a follower of Jesus Christ. Um, either they made it there alive through the great tribulation or they came back in a uh, resurrected body with Jesus at his second coming. And so within this view, the promises to Israel are fulfilled during that seven year period. And uh, the, the second coming of Christ is before the millennium. So it's pre-millennial. Um, people throughout church history, Clement, Polycarp, Tyndale, and more recently, people like Charles Ryrie or Swindoll um, hold that view. And so, again, when you hear that, there are some really um, amazing people that love Jesus in each one of those views. Um, and so I think it's good for us to recognize that our unity is in Christ, not our understanding of what or when the millennium takes place. Um, and what I would also say is that I really doubt that when John the Apostle received this vision and wrote it in a scroll and sent it off to the seven churches within the book of Revelation, I really doubt he was going, I'm sure excited to see how they fight over the thousand years. Um, I, I think that John was thrilled to see and share a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, a glorified Jesus, Jesus judging as the son of man, returning on the clouds, fulfilling his promises to return and establishing his kingdom in a way that we haven't yet fully realized. Um, I think that's what God wanted us to see was who is his son and what is his son going to do upon his return. Um, I can imagine John remembering the events of Acts chapter one 
Um, and in uh, chapter 11, there's two angelic beings. The, the Jesus has just ascended into heaven and the apostles and other eyewitnesses see him go up and ascend it to heaven and two angels stand before them and they say, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. In other words, when he comes back, he's returning in power and on the clouds. And so what John is excited to share was the angels told us that. Jesus said he was going away to prepare a place for us. He is now returning to us, and this promise that Jesus has made is going to happen. I think that when we read the book of Revelation, we shouldn't be worried about our best understanding of the millennium. It's good to know what the views are and have one. Do your homework. You don't have to believe premillennial just because I do. Do your homework and understand where, the, where, where you stand on the scriptures. But in the end, we should see the awesome power of the risen Lord Jesus returning for his people, judging the wicked, and making all things new. That's the focus of the book of Revelation. And so uh, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll uh, take on Revelation chapter 20 together. Our Father, I do, I do ask that as we, um, as we approach this passage that can be so, can be confusing, um, it can be something that we, we think we know better than each other about, and ultimately we want to seek your face and your wisdom. Ultimately, we want to understand uh, who your son is, what he did for us in his first coming, defeating sin through his death, burial, and resurrection, overcoming the power of Satan in our lives now as the Holy Spirit indwells us and allows us to overcome the works of the flesh and live by the power of the Spirit, bearing fruit that we could never live on our own. We want to understand that he came to do that for us the first time, that he was ascended into the heaven and he commissioned his church with a great message to share uh, the gospel of what he'd done for us. But we also want to understand that your son, our Lord Jesus, is coming back. And when he returns, he is going to gather his people. He's going to judge the wicked, and he's going to make all things new. Um, he alone has been given the right to do that. And so let us see how awesome your son is. Let us understand um, how amazing his love is for us, that we've been saved from the judgment that is in this chapter. And that we hold a message to a dying world um, that shouldn't be approached with apathy, but that we should be uh, moved by your love to share this message. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So verses 1 through 3, it says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. So in verses 1 through 3, we see Satan is bound. What I want you to see really here is Jesus takes away Satan's power through an angelic servant. So uh, that's important to recognize that Jesus actually sends an angel out. He holds the key and he holds the great chain and he seizes Satan and he binds him uh, for this thousand year period, whether that's a literal thousand years or you view that as something symbolic of a long period of time. But he's bound by an angel. One of the things that we do oftentimes, a mistake that we make in understanding Jesus and Satan and the conflict that's going on there is we have a tendency to put Jesus and Satan on par with each other. They're not. 
Satan is a created being, a fallen angel, and when Jesus wants to deal with him, he actually sends one of his angels to deal with him. He says, you guys are on the same level, go knock him out, right? And he does. With Jesus' power and with Jesus' authority and, and backed by his name, this angel is going to bind Satan. But, but don't make the mistake that Jesus and Satan are on the same level. Um, he is far greater, far more powerful, and the battle is already won. And so for how long? A thousand years, whether that's literal or, or figurative. Where he's, he's bound in the abyss. That's a word that means the underworld, and it's closed and sealed. Um, there's, there's some speculation about the underworld. Um, there's actually a few commentaries that will say it's a specific place within uh, the nation of Israel, that there's a couple of places where they go, we think that's the abyss that Satan's going to get locked in. I don't know if you need to go that far, um, or if this is just something that's spiritual that's going on. Whatever the case, Satan's influence is extremely diminished, and that's what you see. The effect is that the nations, and that word nations within the scriptures, 96 times it's translated Gentiles, 64 it's translated nation, five times heathen, and two times people. Um, they should just go with heathen every time, I think, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just, um, that's in the KJV. But uh, the, the nations are no longer deceived, and that means to be led away from God, okay? And so that's, that's one of the things where you look at the amillennial view, and, and I, I kind of have a hard time comprehending Satan is bound. The nations are no longer deceived. Um, and I understand what they're saying. They're saying that because the gospel has made its way to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people are now no longer deceived. They have the good news and they're capable of having the right understanding of the way things are. Um, but I also look at our, the nations around the world and very few of them do. I find them undeceived. Um, and so, I don't know, you can go back and forth on that. But the major point here is Jesus takes away Satan's power through an angelic servant. And I think the other thing that you have to do with the book of Revelation is you have to realize that he's done this for us as believers now. That the influence and power that Satan has over you as an individual in Christ, it, has, it is bound. Right? Like we've been freed from his realm. We've been freed from the darkness and the lies that he would have us believe. And we now have life and light in Jesus Christ. And so his power is, is chained. That doesn't mean you couldn't live in a state of spiritual insanity and go for the lies again, but it does mean that if you abide in Christ, if you're united to him, then the power of Satan is something that is not going to have influence in your life. You're going to spot it for what it is through the wisdom and insight of the Holy Spirit, and you're not going to go for it, right? You're not going to fall for the lies of the world. You're not going to give in to the deeds of the flesh. And instead, you're going to walk by the Spirit of God. You're going to keep in step with Him. And so I think we recognize that this is true of us now. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the Word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years." 
And so what this does is it gives us a description of the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ. Jesus elevates his followers. We see that. He elevates his followers into positions of authority. He gives eternal life, and he rewards those who gave their lives for his message or his cause. And so when we talk about God's people being elevated into positions of authority, they're seated and they have authority to judge. Um, their, idec- their, exact, their exact identity is a little bit confusing, a little bit ambiguous. Uh, Jesus predicted in Luke chapter 22 that the 12 disciples would eat and drink at his table and in his kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So one understanding is that some of the thrones are filled with the disciples in this position where they're, they're looking after the nation of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Uh, another context within the book of Revelation could point to the 24 elders seated on 24 thrones. If you remember who they are, 24 elders represent one of two things. Most scholars believe that they represent either church-age believers who are in heaven on these 24 thrones, or they represent believers throughout the Old and New Testament seated on these 24 thrones. Uh, I think it's okay to say that maybe all of those individuals are in positions of authority during the millennium, but uh, the one thing that's interesting is not a single position of power is held by a non-Christian. So there are no non-Christians in positions of influence within Jesus' reign. Okay, And so if you take this literally, that means that when Jesus returns and the millennium takes place and believers are there, only believers are going to be in positions of authority. If you take this figuratively, you understand that within God's kingdom here on earth right now through the church, there are no non-believers in actual positions of authority within his kingdom. Okay, There might be pseudo people pretending to be that way, but they're not actually acting on his behalf. Um, and, and so whatever view you take on that, Jesus does not elevate those who are not his followers into positions of authority in his kingdom. Uh, you, you do not move forward into what's eternal by living apart from Christ. You can only move forward into what's eternal as you live with Christ. The other thing we see is information about the first resurrection. It says this is the first resurrection. Uh, and, and it talks about those who, are, uh, who have given their life, have been martyred for the sake of the gospel. They're, they're raised here in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, if you take a premillennial view, you understand this to be those who were killed by the Antichrist and the false prophet during the Great Tribulation. If you look at this in another way, you could say this is everyone who's been martyred throughout church history, raised and uniquely uh, identified for giving their lives for the sake of the gospel. Um, but when we talk about the first resurrection, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the one who is uh, the type of everyone who will be raised, will be raised like Jesus was raised, a real physical body that lives forever. Um, and that uh, we then see that, that saints who are, are raised, if you believe in a rapture, then Jesus raises those who are dead um, and reunites their body with their soul and their spirit and those who are alive at the time of the trans- at the time of the Uh, rapture are translated directly into a spiritual body in heaven. Uh, We see the two witnesses were resurrected in Revelation chapter 11, and again, the martyred here in Revelation chapter 20. Um, So this is a resurrection of those who are faithful to Jesus, the first resurrection. Um, And it's a resurrection to positions of glory. It's a resurrection to a place of glory. It's a resurrection to the presence of Christ and ruling, reigning, living in his kingdom. The second resurrection and death are not a period of this time. And we'll get to those in just a minute. So you move from that and then it says, 
in verse seven, when the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. They came up across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Most people look at that as Jerusalem. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. And so what we see here is that satanic rebellion is crushed at the source. Uh, We see Jesus do two things here. He reveals the true intentions of the heart. And so there are those who make a profession of faith to Jesus during the millennial time, whether that's right now or something that's future. They make a profession of faith to Jesus, but it's shallow. It's cultural. It's done because mom and dad did it. It doesn't actually have any effect on their mind or their heart. They do not change the way that they live. And so what Jesus does here is he, he reveals the true intentions of the heart. Um, and so uh, you see Gog and Magog show up here. The, Gog is a powerful ruler and Magog, a geographic area. They gather this huge army once more. And so Satan deceives the nations again. He draws out the true intentions of people's hearts as God allows this to take place. And then a powerful ruler and an entire geographic other area, they come together together. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 38 talks about this, but I don't think Ezekiel 38 and Revelation 20 are the same battle. I think uh, Revelation 20 is referencing Ezekiel 38 as a type of the battle that's going to take place. Um, and then uh, Satan's tactics, we see they don't, they don't change much. Um, I have on your hand out there, ramrod, wreckage, and ruin are his style. Any John Wayne fans in the room? Fort Apache? No? Okay. Um, we can still be friends. That's all right. Um, but it's the same way. Satan's, his tactics are, the, it's destroy, deceive, ruin, right? His goal is not anyone's betterment. His goal is their subjugation. His goal is their destruction, okay? His tactics don't change. Um, and so then, then what happens is there's everlasting judgment pronounced on Satan, his pawns, his political leaders, and all those who follow along. And so what Jesus does is he reveals the true intentions of the heart and he damns evil at its source. And I mean damn in the sense of the biblical word. He condemns it. Evil is thrown into the lake of fire. When we talk about the lake of fire, um, in English we would just say hell. Um, that's the way that we understand the word, the lake of fire within English. We use the word hell. But satanic rebellion is crushed at its source. Um, in the process of this taking place, Jesus is going to reveal the true intentions of everyone's heart and their, their state of trust in him. And that's what this next portion is about. Verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So picture multiple books opened, and then there's one that is the book of life. The multiple books are going to read to those who are unsaved the works of their life, and the book of life is going to read to the people who are saved the works of Jesus. Okay? It's, it's very different. Um, So another book was opened, the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. 
and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So a handful of terms to sort of define as you look at that. It, it talks about the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne. The great white throne is a judgment of unbelievers. So actually, we don't want to be here. Um, you don't want to be at the great white throne. You don't want to be a part of those that are judged at the great white throne judgment. Because this is a judgment of unbelievers, and it's based upon their works. Okay, when In Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus returned, we saw the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's more like uh, people are judged according to uh, their trust in Jesus at that. And they're rewarded rather than necessarily judged for living a life and the moments in life where they said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do based upon my faith in Jesus. And that is rewarded. This is very different here. This is a judgment based upon my end or, well, not my individual work. I won't be there. Jesus has saved me from this. But this is based upon an individual's works who, has re, who have rejected Jesus. And the idea is that those who reject Jesus are going to stand before the king of the universe and have to deal with their life that rejected him. They're going to have to, there's going to be all, and no one will say, I did enough. You have to let me in. Everyone will stand before this, and what do they do? They don't stand there strong. They don't stand there firm and go, I deserve to come in. The text says they run away. They're criminals caught in the act. They're, they're, they're rebels headed for the gallows. And every opportunity to run away is what they take. Uh, when it talks about death and Hades, within the scriptures, that's a, that's a reference to the realm of the unsaved dead. So now we have to talk about what happens when we die. So if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've trusted Jesus Christ, he has saved you from your sins, and you are in him, then when we die, we go immediately to heaven. We enter into the place where God resides. Now there's two different views on what heaven we enter. One view is that time ceases to exist and we immediately enter the eternal state. Um, I think the scriptures more teach that when we die, we enter into the current heaven that God lives in. We return with him upon his second coming and that the new heavens and the new earth await us. So if I were to die today, I would go to heaven, not based upon anything that I've done, but based upon the assurance of faith that Jesus Christ has given me and his works, I would go to God's presence right now. If I were unsaved and I rejected Jesus all of my life, we go to the realm of the unsaved dead, which is uh, death and Hades, or in the Old Testament, they use the word Sheol, okay? And so there's a realm of the unsaved dead where their soul and spirit awaits judgment. What's true for everyone is that our spirit and soul will be reunited with our body, whether it's in the sea, whether it was burned up, whether it's buried in a casket, it doesn't matter. God is God, and he's going to reunite our spirit and our soul with our body and enter into either uh, eternal joy because we have trusted in Jesus Christ or enter into eternal judgment because we've rejected Jesus Christ. And so that's what this is talking about. It's talking about the judgment of the unsaved dead being raised from the dead to be judged for their works, which could never measure up to the righteousness of Christ. And so uh, you look at this and there's, there's a very strong question to each and every one of us is, have, if we've tr where, what judgment would you prefer to be at? Would you like to go to court and be condemned, or would you like to go to a marriage supper and enjoy everlasting life? Uh, would you like to head to the gallows or the streets of gold? 
like that's what Revelation is asking each and every one of us. Where do you want to go? And, 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 and if you're saying, well, I want to go to the streets of gold, but I'm going to get there by my own effort. The scriptures say, no, you won't. You will not be good enough. You will not do it. The question isn't, do I have enough love in me? Is there enough mercy in me? Is there enough merit in me to earn heaven? That's, that's the wrong question. The, the right question is, have I trusted in the merit of Jesus Christ to save me and based upon his riches, his wealth, his character, his death, his burial, his resurrection, I know that I'm going to heaven. And you have to understand that this is what works-based theology does to us. It makes us question our salvation. If, if getting into heaven is based upon what I can do and how I can perform, I don't know if I'm going to make it. And that's what false religion does. It makes you question whether or not you'll be there. But what Jesus does is he says, if you're my sheep, you're my sheep, and I'm going to let you in, and you're there. No one can take you out of his hand. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your salvation, your eternity is secure. Nobody can take it. Now, God's going to reveal the true intentions of our heart. And there's going to be a lot of, he's going to say, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we did this, that, and the other thing. And he's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And so he's going to reveal the true intentions of our heart. And so uh, Micah said that we should sober up. I hope he didn't mean that literally. Um, but there is a, there's a spiritual sobering that has to take place. Am I going to the gallows? Or am I entering into eternal glory? Where am I headed? And why do I believe that? Do I believe that I'm going to, I I mean, no, I'm not a murderer. I'm certainly not Stalin or Hitler. You know, I'm not going to the gallows. Well, nonsense. We've all sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. And because of that, we're all condemned apart from the saving work of Christ. It is not until I believe in the saving work of Christ that I could know anything other than condemnation because he took it for me and now offers me salvation. Let me tell you how Jesus said this in John chapter 3. It's on your handout. But Jesus has an interaction with a Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is curious. Who is this Jesus guy? Is he a prophet? Is he the Messiah? Is he a whacked-out rabbi? He, you know, he wants to know, who is this Jesus? Jesus tells him that he has to be born again. He tells, him, uh, he tells him in verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus tells Nicodemus a story that would have been familiar to him from the book of Numbers, that the Jewish people, they're wandering in the wilderness and they're whining and they're complaining and they're, they're saying, we should go back to the gods of Egypt. We were better off as slaves to the gods of Egypt. Idolatry was better than following Yahweh is essentially what they're saying. And so God says, well, if you want idolatry, I'll let you have it. Here's the consequences of idolatry is you're going to experience death. And so he sends in fiery serpents and they're called fiery serpents because their snake bite kind of burns. And so there's people losing their lives. It's God demonstrating what idolatry brings. It's God demonstrating what rejecting him results in, death. And so the people, they recognize it for what it is. And they go, wow, we blew it. We know we blew it. Moses, help us. So Moses goes to God and God says, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and anyone who looks at it will be healed. Okay. And so Jesus says, that's how the son of man has to go up. 
He has to be lifted up. He's, gonna, he's telling him about his crucifixion. He's going to go to the cross. He's going to die. And that anyone who would look at Jesus on the cross and say, he has paid the consequences of my idolatry. He has paid the consequences of rejecting the God of the Bible. And through his death, I'm made whole. So that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. And then the one everybody knows, John 3, 16, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. This is God's agape love, his self-sacrificing, unconditional, unbelievable, grace-based, mercy-filled, saving us from our sin love. And it's for you, it's for me, it's for everyone that would look at Jesus' death and say, I have been saved. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He says, why am I here in my first coming? Not condemnation, but salvation. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is condemned, is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. This is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, And people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. And so he says, this is the judgment. And so when we get to Revelation chapter 20 and we see the great white throne judgment, this is the judgment. And what people are going to realize is that they are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the one and only son of God, Jesus Christ. They'll stand there and they'll go, oh no, I'm about to be judged based upon my works and my merit and it's going to be terrible. And that's the judgment And Jesus says that the light has come into the world. People love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. What do people do in Revelation when the judgment shows up? They run from it. I don't want people to know (laughs) the horrible things about me. I don't want people to know the wicked thoughts that are in my head. I don't want people to know the brokenness that I I have. I don't want people to know uh, the secret sins that exist within me. I don't want to be exposed in front of everyone all over again. You ever get caught in something, you know it was wrong, how embarrassing it is. I don't want to do that all over again. And not just for one thing, but my whole life we're going to, oh boy. But the one who lives by the truth comes to the light. The one who lives by the truth says, I am broken. I am sinful. Yes, I've messed up. And I really, really need forgiveness. That's what people who love the light do. That's what people who love the truth do. They don't pretend. They're not hypocrites. They say, I have done things wrong. And I bring my wrong to you, God, expecting forgiveness because you've promised it to me expecting that Jesus' blood will cover my wrong. And furthermore, God, I expect that because Jesus rose from the dead, you're going to develop in me a new way of living. I'm not going to live the way that I used to live. I'm not going to live for what I used to live. I'm not going to have the same desires I used to have. But I expect, Jesus, that you're going to make me new and you're going to transform me into the image of your son so that we have way less conversations about my brokenness and way more conversations about your merit that you've given to me.
And so we see that salvation is accomplished and given through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Again, the question is not whether or not I have enough good in me, whether or not I have enough love in me to merit salvation. I don't. And you don't either. The question is, do I hate evil, especially the evil in myself? Do I hate the evil in myself? Do I hate the broken patterns of my flesh? The broken ways that my my mind works and, and the things that are going on that I wish God would replace? Do I hate those things? Am I willing to say what's wrong in me, I want eradicated? Not at a final judgment in the lake of fire, but I want it eradicated by the grace and mercy of God. Do I long for light, for truth on God's terms, or do I avoid it? I gotta tell you, this is one of the things that, I'll just say it like it is, I hate about our society. It tells us that tolerance is the key to human flourishing. It's not. Me tolerating my sin is not the key to me living well. You tolerating your sin is not the key to living well. It's certainly not the key to salvation. It probably is the key to death in Hades. And so one of the things that this does to us as Christians, though, is, you know, it's like, if I buy this tolerance thing, I'm going to be apathetic about sharing the gospel. I'm going to think that looking at you and telling you or my love, telling one of my loved ones that, that they're fine the way that they are when they're not. And we're told that tolerance equals love. It doesn't. Because that form of tolerance results in people going to hell. And so being apathetic and tolerant towards someone's eternity, that's a lack of love. And so as Christians, we cannot buy this nonsense. Not with our classmates, not with our friends, not with our family, not with our society. Am I thirsty for life and thankful that Jesus gives it to me? Do I want to share the water of life with those around me? Do I live by truth as I genuinely follow Jesus? Here's one. Are my works driven for salvation or from salvation? Do I believe that what I do will acquire for me what Jesus has bought for me? Or do I recognize that what I do is because Jesus has made me new? Am I, am I expecting God to owe me or am I grateful for what he's given me? There are two possibilities for each of our eternity, condemnation and restoration. Which one awaits me? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are the God of love. John says that you define love. God, you, you, you are love. You're self-sacrificing. You pursue us no matter what we do. You offer us forgiveness and uh, you, you, make, you have your own son die on our behalf and you, you grace us with life. 
You are the God of love. And you are the God of justice. These are not opposite things. They are the same thing. You are the God who condemns unrighteousness. You are the God who eradicates evil. That is love. That you would take away my brokenness. You would eradicate it. That you would promise all of those who trust you a future where there's no more sin, there's no more death, there's no more mourning, there's no more tears. You promise us the perfection that we all long for as we trust that your son Jesus has taken away our sin and given us new life. God, help us to see how awesome your son is and what he's done for us. Help us to see how awesome it is and long for his return. Help us to see how amazing he is and long for others in our lives to know him. Don't let us just drift through life with our society, God. But give us a compelling vision. You have given us a compelling vision for what is to come. Let us fix our hope on you. In Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.